Hello. Hi. Welcome to issue four of Scout and Birdie. Be kind, rewind. So when we were brainstorming ideas for our upcoming issues, we thought of this phrase, be kind, rewind. And I know it's a popular movie. We were not thinking about the movie. We were not thinking of the popular movie. We haven't even seen it. I'm pretty sure I have not seen the movie either. But we were thinking about this. To me, it reminds me of like blockbuster video, uh, the classic movie rental spot. Um, And that reminds me a lot about summertime um, and going to like drive to the video rental spot with my mom and pick up VHS tapes and things like that. Yeah, I would walk to the video rental spot with my mom and we would always get raisinets. Very fancy. Yeah, a posh child. (laughs) I guess we would... We would do a lot of TV dinners in my house and we would watch a movie and eat dinner together um, like with our little kotatsu table, which is like a Japanese heat lamp table. Very specific to Japanese households, I think, but it's very cozy. We would just sit on my mom's bed all together and like eat Chinese food and watch movies. (laughs) That's amazing. It's very like cozy, snuggly summary to me yeah yeah um summer is really our best season anyway oh we have the best time in summer we do lots of activities we really love the summer uh jen is super vitamin d deficient oh yes so the very, summer is helpful it's very helpful to me um i don't absorb vitamin d well even in the summer but it's slightly better so that's good and my hair curls really nicely in the humidity of summer, so I look really cute. Ideal. <laughs> it's really the best season for us. Mm-hmm. We're healthy and happy. And then when winter comes again, we just reminisce about, about summer. summer to like keep us going. Most of our friendship is like reminiscing. We love to recap yeah. everything that's happened to us. Um, we use an app called Voxer, which is a walkie-talkie app. Uh, they're our sponsor. Yes, <laughs> they are very amazing and we highly recommend it um, because it's really nice. You can just talk through your thought process on something instead of texting and not getting any intonation or anything like that. So it's really lovely. Yeah. And there's a limit on like 15 minutes per message. And we regularly just will send each other multiple 15 minutes just going over everything that happened to us that day. For that morning. Yeah, a lot of the time it'll be in the morning before we've even started anything. Just <laughs> on our day. Just, oh, I'm walking to work right now. Amazing. Saw a cute dog on my way to work. Cool. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, but nothing can beat the time that we, um, we just switch off of Voxer because we had to be like live with each other on, on the, the phone <laughs> when we tried to clean out our closets. And you at your house and me at mine. Yeah, and we went through all of our paperwork and stuff, like our cards and school papers and things like that, and we read each other all of the cards that we had from each other. Very sentimental stuff. We're mushy card writers, so that's kind of what we do. We're big, sentimental, mushy folks, So, (laughs) (laughs) so really this theme is ideal for us. Um, Yeah, we love to recap and rewind and so we figured hopefully other people do too and we got a lot of really great pieces coming up for you in this yeah. issue and we can't wait for you to 
go back on this journey of memories with us. <laughs> so enjoy this issue. Be kind, rewind. Okay, so first up in the issue, we have Jasmine Davila. And I know Jasmine because I recently did um, the show that she co-runs, Misspoken. Uh, it's a really great live lit event where people, uh, women, read their pieces. And it was so lovely to it meet her. It was a really fun event to be at, too. And we got to hear Jasmine do a story of her time in London, which was very memorable. And we were like, ah, we got to have her do this issue. She'll be perfect for it. And sure enough, she was just like the loveliest person to record with. <laughs> and we talked about like Oprah and the Queen's Corgis. God bless them. God bless them. I was like, what a kindred spirit for me. <laughs> so <laughs> um, please enjoy the wonderful, wonderful Jasmine Davila and her piece, Movie of the Week. The video store on Jamaica Avenue charged us a dollar every time we returned a tape unrewound. When I say we, I mean me and my older sister, as it was our responsibility to return the tapes anybody in the family borrowed. The walk to the store wasn't long, just five or six blocks under the elevated tracks of the JMZ train line that wound through our neighborhood in Queens. The journey wasn't exciting or scenic, so a round trip to return the old tape and borrow a new one was not what either of us would consider a privilege, but it wasn't a total chore either. For in those blocks, we would encounter a whole world of things upon which we could spend the dollar that would otherwise be spent on a video store fee. For that price, the pizza place would give you six zeppelis, fried balls of dough thrown into a brown paper bag and buried under an avalanche of powdered sugar. Or you can get a plain slice so big that it spilled over the edges of the white paper plate upon which it was served as it dripped orange grease onto the ground and onto your feet if you weren't careful. Across the street, the bodega sold quarter waters, ice cream sandwiches that were always too hard, puffed up bags of Utz potato chips and stale candy. You could buy a few loose cigarettes and the clerk would throw in a white book of matches for free. But the bodega also had creepy looking men of various ages who'd like to loiter outside and hiss. A dollar could get you in the door of Lewis's of Woodhaven, one of a dying breed of mom-and-pop general stores that was endangered by the Woolworths chain and then made extinct by Dwayne Reed, Rite Aid, CVS, Walgreens. Lewis's was huge with shelves and bins full of anything you can think of. Tube socks, toothbrushes, flip-flops, bags of rubber bands, and boxes of pencils. Decorations for Christmas and Hanukkah would be out all year. You could spend hours walking a slow circuit through its narrow aisles humming along to the music that was piped in for your shopping pleasure. But there was still the question of that rewinding fee. The video store sold machines that did nothing but rewind tapes. Save that dollar, save the heads of your VCR, and leave the rewinding to a contraption that would only set you back $19.99 plus tax. The investment would pay for itself in no time, or at least the amount of time it took to borrow, watch, rewind, and return 20 VHS cassettes. It wasn't that hard to convince our parents to invest in one, though there was little money for frivolous video rentals, let alone a device that could only rewind tapes. But mom and dad liked toys. They liked having things around the house that reminded them of when life was a little more comfortable. When the money dad made stretched further in rural Japan, where he had been stationed by the United States Navy, than it did in New York City, where he moved the family upon re-entering civilian life. 
Instead of a ranch-style house set in the Okinawan countryside, we now lived in a three-bedroom apartment, the second floor of a two-family house on a shabby street. It was always dark, and being that it contained two grown-ups, five children, and a whole house worth of furniture and toys and clothes and household goods and weird smells, home felt crowded and small. My parents refused to throw anything out, so we navigated mountains of clothes, or sometimes tripped and fell into open cardboard boxes that were only half unpacked and would remain that way for the six years that we lived there. Like oases in the desert, we tended to crowd around the few places and landmarks in the apartment that were not blocked by an avalanche of old t-shirts and towels. The dining room table, covered by a crocheted tablecloth, then topped by a sheet of plastic, was one. The overstuffed velour couch, scratchy so our mother covered it with old sheets, was another. Despite the piles and boxes, things had a way of migrating. A fork or a watch or a library book or a video was never lost but simply unavailable for a period of time. Nobody else moved it. You were simply not paying attention when you left it somewhere it didn't belong. Stop whining. Stop looking with your mouth and look with your eyes. What are you doing? Retrace your steps. Go back to where you started. None of us had much in the way of chores, as our parents seemed to accept our laziness as a given instead of a result of overindulgence. We weren't bad kids, but we weren't exactly good. We frustrated and angered our parents, disappointed and frequently embarrassed them. I think they may have sometimes looked at the five of us and wondered where the hell we came from. The five of us were almost autonomous, governing ourselves so our parents didn't have to intervene and end disputes with a long lecture, a whipping from our dad's belt, or a truly awful tantrum from our mother. As the oldest, my sister Jocelyn could make decisions, but it was up to me to enforce them. I didn't love rules, but I was interested in fairness. It spoke to my nascent nerdiness, which brings me back to the video store. I abused that video store membership, borrowing the one copy of Merchant Ivory's A Room of the View every Friday night and returning it reluctantly every Sunday afternoon. I liked to watch certain scenes over and over again. In particular, the two kissing scenes one in the middle of a barley field in Italy, and the other on a tennis court somewhere in rural Edwardian England. Also this scene where three naked men pranced around a pool before leaping into the water and wrestling. These moments were stolen illicit pleasures. I had to be careful about watching the movie, and those scenes in particular, because there was only one television in the house. I could never watch anything in total privacy because at some point, a parent or a sibling would shuffle past, no doubt in the middle of retracing their steps to look for the bracelet or McDonald's apple pie or porcelain figure in the shape of an 18th century French noblewoman, squint at the television and say, you're watching those naked white boys again? I was never forbidden from renting the movie, but instead subjected to my mother calling me a prebert or my sister sighing and telling me I was so corny and why couldn't we rent something cool or fun like gleaming the cube? If I didn't get my weekly viewing of this movie, I would instead be made to watch something the whole family could enjoy, like the Care Bears movie. We held on to the rewinding machine longer than we should have. For something that only had one job, a job which admittedly it did very well, we kept it around more for its potential than its actual usefulness. There may have been laser discs and DVDs and cable television, but these things were expensive. Who cares if nobody watched our collection of tapes anymore or that the video store began to stock more laser discs and DVDs on their shelves? We could buy the tapes the store was discarding, build our own library, keep the rewinding machine busy until, at some point, it too got lost, mislaid, shoved under the couch or buried under a pile of sweatshirts, somewhere it simply did not belong.
All right. Next up, we have Maura Billick. You might remember Maura from our messy issue. Yes. And now she's back with another piece. We're really excited to bring you The Lady at LaSalle and Van Buren. It was a ridiculously gorgeous Friday afternoon in Chicago, the first day that actually felt like May. So I'm getting off the brown line. My feet are fucking killing me thanks to the new shoe warrior wounds from the cheap Target flats I bought last minute for a series of interviews I had. You know, the pointy looking ones that provide almost no coverage to your toes or heels. I hate them, but I hate heels more. I also hate the idea that I might have to sacrifice the comfort of my feet for a job with a strict dress code, but the growing gap in my resume was digging at me deeper than the cheap fabric that rubbed against my heels. I had never worked anywhere where wearing chucks was against dress code. I wasn't sure I wanted to. I wished I had brought them to change into, but I had no room in my bag. I wonder why so many people have to sacrifice the comfort of their feet for a nine to five. Cause bills, that's why. As I got off the L and approached the staircase to exit, I reminded myself that my next destination wasn't more than a block away. I couldn't wait to sit down and lift my wrecked heels out of the murderous target flats. Almost there. I feel my phone buzz and pull it from my pocket. It's an email from a company I'm interviewing with. Copywriter position, next steps. The subject line has me feeling hopeful. I've been waiting for an answer for weeks. Impatience gets the best of me and I open the message as I shuffle quickly down the stairs. My eyes hungrily scan the screen. Dear Mora, while we were very impressed with your background, we have decided to move forward with other candidates. We wish you the best of- God damn it, seriously? Next steps? What a thoughtful way to title a potentially soul-crushing email. Speaking of next steps, I didn't see him coming. Like, the visible ones, right in front of me. I fly forward, thinking, fuck. And I land, with all of my weight on my right ankle. My tumble concludes on the side of the L staircase. Everything stops and there's just pain and anger and more pain. My inner dialogue kicks in to taunt me. The skin on my foot stings relentlessly, both from the abrasion of the city sidewalk and from the fabric of the cheap flats that have eaten away at layers of my skin. Stupid fucking shoes. I can't discern the pain from how pissed I am at myself. Did someone just fucking laugh at me? Of course they did. I'm an idiotic millennial who can't unglue her eyes from her iPhone for five seconds. Maybe next time she'll learn not to stare at her phone all the time. Note that this is all taking place in less than three minutes, not the three hours that it felt like. My ankle is throbbing. It was far from the first time I'd taken a fall. I'm super clumsy, but I've never sustained a serious injury from it. My stomach turns as I realize today might finally be the day. I need to get moving. I try to boost myself up. Oh my god. Ow. Nope. Not happening. I fall back down. My ankle pain multiplies in intensity. I feel paralyzed by the pain of my injury, which is only outweighed by the panic that consumes me as I realize I can't even stand on my own two feet right now, setting the scene for the perfect panic attack scenario. I remember some generic advice about controlling your breathing when you feel anxiety coming on. Inhale. Throb. Exhale. Burn. A woman in pink approaches. I wish I could remember her face, but I'm not even sure I saw it. Thankfully, she saw me and said exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. Are you okay? Like I said, I'm a clumsy girl and I hurt myself a lot, so 
Naturally, I get asked that question a lot, and for some reason, my first reaction is always anger. No, I'm not okay. Did you just see me wipe the fuck out? I remind myself that it's an icebreaker. What else can you really say when you see someone get hurt? Ice. I could definitely use some of that right now. Um, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I mutter between breaths, my voice high-pitched and unable to mask the pain that I felt. No, I'm not. I whisper internally. She knows that I'm lying. No, you're not. I saw that fall. Can I look at your foot? I nod eagerly, feeling like a little kid who fell off the monkey bars whose mom had come to the rescue. She asks where I'm headed. I pointed toward the South Street station. Train, I gasped. Funny how five minutes ago it seemed so close and I thought nothing could hurt more than my flesh-eating flats. The lady stood by my side and worked with me to regain balance. She patiently waited until I began to slowly rise from the sidewalk. She showed me the best way to limp walk without putting too much pressure on my injured ankle. She pulls me along while I limp, pulling luggage in her other hand. I forgot to ask where she was going. My ankle throbbed and skin burned with each step. I realized that if she saw me fall, she probably saw me staring at my phone. I felt the urge to explain myself, a feeling entirely too familiar in my life. I tell her about how I'd been looking for work for nearly two months and how I got an email from a company I'd been interviewing with and just couldn't wait to open it, only to find out I'd been passed on. I told her how that fall hurt so much more while paired with the pain of rejection. I don't think I've ever felt more pathetic as I limped beside her and blubbered about how the world was just working against me lately and now this. I'm guessing she was at least 20 years older than me. I wondered if she was thinking about how selfish I sounded, if she restrained the urge to tell me how other people had it so much worse and couldn't afford shitty shoes from Target, let alone an iPhone, how being unemployed for a couple of months is nothing and there are people who have been out of work for a couple of years. People who took worse falls and couldn't ever work again. People with kids and mortgages and other responsibilities I knew nothing about. I knew I didn't deserve sympathy, but she offered it anyway. You're gonna be just fine, sweetie. I watched you wipe out bad, and then you try and tell me that you're okay? I knew damn well you weren't. You're a stubborn one. We both laughed. As for your job search, I've been there. You'll find something before you know it. You're a fighter. I could tell her right away. Because if I felt like that, I would have been crying so hard. I think I did cry, or I would have if I wasn't so focused on trying to breathe. But her words felt so good, I didn't bother to correct her. We finally reached LaSalle Street Station. She asks multiple times if I'm going to be okay from there. My eyes fill with tears. I can't wait to be somewhere safe to let them free. But these tears weren't from pain. They were from sheer gratitude. I'll be okay, thanks to you. I squeezed her hand as we unlinked arms, which was weird because I'm not a touchy person, let alone with someone I've just met, but I was so touched by her kindness. Thank you so much, I choked out. You're welcome, dear. Get some ice on that foot right away, and good luck with the job search. You'll get something soon. Sure enough, I received a job offer four days later. On the train ride back to the suburbs, I stared out the window, watching the world whisk past wondering just how many truly good people were a part of it. Like that lady. I wondered if she was some kind of guardian angel sent over to LaSalle and Van Buren at that exact moment to help me stand on my two feet again, to help me reach my destination. There she was, at the right place, at the right time, with all the right things to say to make me feel better. LaSalle and Van Buren is a busy spot, especially on a Friday afternoon. 
I'm certain multiple people saw me fall and didn't think twice about helping me. And those who didn't see had their eyes glued to their phone phones, oblivious to their surroundings, just like I was in that moment. Over time, I too have developed tunnel vision as a pedestrian in Chicago. I too have become coldly conditioned to walking past people who cry out for spare change, for something to eat, for the help of a passerby. I watched so many feet shuffle quickly past me, but one lady amongst the sea of people stopped to help. My ankle was healed quickly, and the injury ended up being not nearly as terrible as it felt at that moment. But in that moment, I felt truly stuck. In that moment, I knew nothing but pain. And someone saw. I like to believe karma exists. It's a comforting thought that maybe the lady on LaSalle and Van Buren showed up at that place at that time because of the strangers I've stopped to help throughout my life. That maybe there is a cosmic circle of universal compassion that thrives thanks to people like her. To the lady on LaSalle and Van Buren, you could have walked away, but you didn't. You knew that I needed you. Maybe more than I knew I did at that very moment. Thank you for not being a careless bystander. Thank you for not judging me for endangering myself because of an email. Thank you for pausing your own journey to link arms with a stranger and ensure their safety on the rest of theirs. I saw the luggage you pulled on your opposite arm and I knew you had somewhere to be just as much, if not more than the flock of people passing you by. Still, you didn't think twice about helping someone in need even when they denied your help the first time. I'm sure I'm only one of many who have been touched by your compassion. I'll never forget how selfless you were and the comfort of your warmth at a time when I felt completely vulnerable, when I needed someone to help me up and kindly remind me that it wasn't the end of the world. To you, it may not have seemed like much, but your kindness meant everything to me. Thank you. Alrighty, so we're here with Matt McNish, um, our lovely friend. Um, we met Matt from uh, a show at CIC? Yeah, we met him through Hey Nani, which is another online literary magazine, but they were doing a show called It's Personal, hosted mm-hmm. by the very lovely Maura McDaniel. Um, so yeah. Hi, a very Matt. cool show. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It was such a good, like, come together of a lot of different people. Yeah, I love that groups. really inspired. Like, and it's funny because I didn't know that you two actually were doing this. Um, but I, separate yeah. from you both, was, like, talking about both of your pieces <laughs> later that night where I was, like, I was so inspired by both of them. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, we were really drawn to you as, like, just a writer in general. And then you. you submitted this gorgeous song to us and we were like wow he's just so talented overall so yeah tell us a little bit about what inspired your song yeah so um there's two that I sent to you guys actually Mm -hmm. and the one that makes more sense to me because I like understand what it's about more is uh I think I called it like VBD or something in the uh song that I sent to you but it stands for like Vietnam's bad dreams which is essentially about uh, my relationship with my dad, who's like a Vietnam War vet, mm-hmm. um, which that definitely, I didn't even realize it at the time, because when you're in childhood, like you don't know, but I think that was 
really shaped a lot of my experience as a kid and my relationship with him. Um, so essentially that song is attempting to like make sense of a life and a history that somebody has that doesn't make any sense to me personally. I mean, I, I can't imagine some of the stuff that he might have seen and done too, um, which he's talked about. And I know that it had like a really profound effect on him. Um, but yeah, so that song is like a little embarrassing almost because it's so, even like saying daddy in a song at one point, there's a lyric that says daddy. Um, so it feels like a really, really personal song. Um, but I kind of was like, I think I need to write about this and just let it be and not try to edit it or make me sound cooler or something in the song, you know? The song is gorgeous, um, which we just were listening <laughs> to it. So, um, but it, I mean, it's really interesting hearing all of that now. It kind of gives it a whole new context because I didn't like totally get that. Yeah. Um, Wow. <laughs> How would you say that, like, the process of starting wanting to write that song and then writing it, has it affected your your viewpoints on anything? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was only when I left my house and in college that I processed. I, I remember going to a therapist and I started describing things. Um, but to me, like, you know, you assume everything is normal. Um, and then a therapist was, as I was describing stuff about my dad was like, so your dad has post-traumatic stress disorder, which I had heard before, but never understood. That made so much sense once she, once she said that. And like, there were even clearer signs, like he would have really crazy dreams and wake up screaming from them, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so the decision to like write a song about it, it came after I had a conversation with a friend about my relationship with my dad, um, where I kind of was processing that his health was fading, if only slightly, just because it's weird watching your parents age. So I was kind of trying to figure out, like, I wonder if we'll ever be to a point where we can be fully honest with one another, uh, where I can really authentically be like, I'm being myself in front of him, and he can really authentically feel like he's being open with me. Um, and she was like, I think you're going to need to figure that out. Yeah. And <laughs> I needed to write a song for a show. And then I ended up writing that song that night. Um, I think initially the way I write is a lot of the time, like I'll start with some sort of riff or something that I'll improvise lyrics over. And I think initially it was going to be like a love song or something. So it's funny. <laughs> that, like in, it, I was like, it's just going to be about daddy issues now, which, um, <laughs> It was fun to kind of play with that a little bit. Um, was the song originally for Mora's show, Daddy Issues? Um, no, actually. I think I had written it, like, I'd written it on guitar, like, a lot more folksy of a version that isn't very good, honestly. <laughs> um, but I had written it for also a show at CIC, which now I can't remember. Um, me and my friend Rose Boyle, who also does some writing and some music stuff, um, we both were going to collaborate for a show and I needed to write something within 24 hours and then that song mm. came out. Yeah. It's funny what will come out of you in 24 hours when you're under that deadline. Right. We have done like a few 24 hour shows that have been solo performance based and it'll be like something very strange will come <laughs> out usually, but it, 
usually is something very deeply personal. You almost like get to it quicker under the deadline kind of feeling, yeah. which is so strange. Because you're like, oh, if I didn't have that, would that song ever have come out? And that's kind of weird <laughs> to be like, oh, I need, I need strange, um, arbitrary deadlines to like make some of the best <laughs> right. work that I end up making. Um, like that feeling of panic sort yeah. of like forces you to <laughs> oh. create stuff maybe you weren't 100% ready to create yeah. or like thought you were ready to create. Yeah. And I think also, especially since like, the most difficult part about any creative process, I'm learning as I'm like becoming more slowly more prolific. I feel like when I was younger, I had all these ideas, but I just never knew how to execute them. And I'm just learning so much of it is also like, okay, I'm an artistic person in the sense that I am inclined to sometimes be inspired and want to make something. Um, but so much of it is just sitting down and doing the rough work of like, okay, I've got this big inspired idea. Now I need to just sit down and try to do it. And the deadlines help for that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for <laughs> creating this for us and also for being here with us. Yeah, yeah. glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> so without further ado, please enjoy Matt's song, BBD. Darkest neighbor's light All seems 
All right, so if you're flipping through the online version of the issue on scoutandbirdie.com, up next is a really cool video called Here We Have No Bodies. So this video is by a few people. It features original text by our friend David Stobie, who has been on a few issues of Scout and Birdie um, with his awesome poetry. But it also is arranged and performed by Sebastian Jimenez Galindo and features music by Chris Zabrinsky. So go check that out online. It's really awesome and very much worth taking that extra step to check out. And next up in the podcast, we have our friend Emily Nickfar. You'll remember her from our messy issue. Yeah, and we're really excited to have her on again. Um, so please enjoy her piece. Chocolate peanut butter cup. I'm seven years old and I am visiting with Mumum for a week on summer vacation. Mumum is my mother's mother. I call her Mumum because I, as a baby, I couldn't say grandma. I have been looking forward to seeing Mumum for weeks. I can't wait to explore her attic and see all the old stuff she has up there. Ugh, my mom says it's garbage, but I love it. She says that I can't explore the attic until I have made my bed. I don't have to make my bed at home, but I want to be a good guest like mom tells me to, so I make the bed. 
Only, I, I, I didn't make it right. I didn't fold the corners of the sheets and fluff the pillows up. Now I'm not allowed in the attic. I'll have to try harder tomorrow. Yesterday we were supposed to go to the circus, but she wanted to take a nap instead. I understand. She's old, and old people are tired. For dinner, we are eating stuffed bell peppers. The green peppers turn out crunchy and squishy, and the ground beef turns out crunchy and squishy. I can't finish my peppers, so I go to bed hungry. It's okay, though, because today, Mum is taking me out for ice cream. She's never taken me out for ice cream before. We are driving through the backwoods of Altoona, Pennsylvania in her gold minivan that smells like mothballs and cough drops. There is no air conditioner in her gold minivan and I am sweating from the June humidity. We get to the ice cream store and I ask for vanilla cookie dough ice cream served in a cup. No, you're not getting that flavor. I don't like cookie dough. My mom orders me chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream because that is what she is ordering for herself. I am handed a waffle cone of two large scoops of chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream and my mom pulls me by my arm to sit outside at a picnic table in the sun. I look inside at the happy kids eating vanilla cookie dough ice cream and enjoying the air conditioning. My mom, can we go back inside? It's hot out here. She takes a lick of her ice cream cone. No. I start eating my ice cream, but it melts because it's too hot and the scoops are too big. I eat faster and faster and still the chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream drips out of the waffle cone and onto my new yellow shorts where it leaves brown stains on the thighs. The chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream melts down my hands and down my arms into the pits of my elbows. Mama, there's ice cream in my hands and it's on my arms and I can't eat it fast enough. She continues to eat her cone of chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream and ignores me sitting next to her, crying. Oh, God damn it, Emily. I can't even enjoy my goddamn ice cream while you're here. Christ. She reaches over, snatches the chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream cone from my hand and slams it onto the faded wood picnic table. My mom yanks me from the picnic table, cutting my legs on cracked wood as I stand up and shoves me back into the hot gold minivan with no air conditioning. I'm sorry, Mama. I sit in the hot gold minivan in silence as we drive 45 minutes back to her house covered in chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream. Despite the heat, Mama's gold minivan is frigid on the inside. This is the moment that I learned my grandmother is a miserable old bitch. Okay, so now we have Emily Matapusi Pera here with us. <laughs> um, Emily, you'll recognize who has been in a few issues of Scout and Birdie, and we're really happy to have her back. Um, we're going to be talking her a little bit about her erasure poems from Pointed Roofs by Dorothy Richardson. Um, so yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the text? Yeah, thanks gals. Always <laughs> great to be back. Scout and Birdie, such talented individuals. Um, yeah, so Pointed Roofs by Dorothy Richardson was published in 1915, and I had recently learned that it's the first 
um, stream of consciousness novel published in English. It actually predated James Joyce and a lot of other authors who you might have heard about, you know, with Ulysses and other novels of that genre. And I thought it was really interesting that it's a woman who wrote the first stream of consciousness novel in English, and it's not someone that we really read that widely today. So I learned about her at the Poetry Foundation. So I'll put in a little plug for that, <laughs> especially if you're in Chicago, yeah. Poetry Foundation right downtown on Superior, and which is a great resource for you know Chicago authors of poetry. And I had learned about her and had really started to get into Erasure Poems this year. And then as I started reading her novel, I just found it to be a really fruitful place, starting point for reflecting on uh, being a woman in modern society and portrayals of femininity. Because no matter how I read her text, just so many words jumped out at me that when, when you put them together or took them apart were kind of damaging to women. And starting to erase that was this really powerful experience for me of you know, going through it and starting to create a story and almost a parallel story to the novel itself um, in terms of it being a female protagonist in the novel and what she goes through um, moving from her home in England to be to work at a girls' school in Germany and kind of having a lot of issues with that and undergoing identity changes. I created a little bit of a parallel story of her and not that it's an altogether positive one, but it's just an interesting way to reflect on that experience of being a young woman and growing up in a very different era, you know, in the early 1900s and what she went through. And for people at home who might not know what mm -hmm. erasure poems are, mm. um, traditionally they are, you would take a physical text and you would like black out or cross out um, pieces of the original text to create a new meaning and transform it. Um, into what you would like to be. Um, yeah. Anything to add to that? No, no I think that was <laughs> summed it no, up. Yeah, and um, all of this text is online um, yeah. on the issue, so if you're interested in seeing uh, the like text that has been blotted out. Mm -hmm. um, and the original text you can find on Project Gutenberg. Yeah, it's um, all available free online. You can read the whole novel, Pointed Roofs. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. So you just read it right on your laptop or download it. And it's 13 parts, right? <laughs> yeah. She, she's, this is the volume one of Pointed Roofs, which was um, yeah originally published in 1915. And then she worked on it till the end of her life, which I believe was in 1957. I think so, Can yeah. Can you correct me on that? <laughs> so, she, yeah, she was a contemporary of you know James Joyce and a lot of other folks who were, wrote in the same genre. Awesome. Well, with that, yeah. we'll take you into the actual erasure poems. <laughs> the Secret Bright sweep of girls brought misery. The very minims had stiffened, and she had worked them and resented. She had a nice firm mass and forgotten fear. She fumbled until the thumping began again. She had to reproduce the secret. Twice she succeeded and once left. On Dread. The convulsive force of arms, her own dreadful. Eager and dumb and remorseful, 
she had stood face to face sinking before each releasing paroxysm. There would be breakfast, cold, exhaustion, and end, her father. What he wanted. Very good, she heard him say. Select, she heard, daughters of gentlemen. Her lonely pilgrimage, heart sinking, their dismay, her fear. Acceptance in insisting and carrying her, poor dear. He always wanted her to be the same. Her performance. A radiance for a moment. The gravity opened on her ribbon-knotted dress. Prepared for the difference between the performance of these girls and nearly all. Firmly poised, bare, with absence. Okay, so next up we have the long-awaited return of our friend Michael Lavalle's scandalous sexcapades through Europe. Yes, so please enjoy the third installment of When I Woke Up in Putney, a European sexcapade series, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, that's right. You heard me. The city where weed, bikes, and prostitutes live in harmony. And the next stop on my trip after London. I arrive on June 18th, 2016 and meet up with Olivia and Elisa, my old co-workers in Chicago who flew in from America that same day. Amsterdam is the first of six cities we are all in together, including another co-worker, Shannon, who we meet up with later. After an hour train ride into the city, we arrive in the center of Amsterdam just as it starts raining. Luckily, I took a screenshot of our route on Google Maps so I knew how to get to our hostel on foot. Attempting to take in the city without getting too drenched, we make our way through narrow brick streets with dozens of french fry shops, walk over scenic tree-lined canals into massive city plazas covered in pigeons, cross intersections with a bike path, car path, and city tram path, while maneuvering through Dutch citizens wearing black peacoats, gray joggers, and white adidas, and finally make it to our hostel after about 30 minutes. Our hole-in-the-wall hostel has steep staircases leading to random mezzanine-like floors, tiny hallways plastered with posters of events around the city, tiny bathrooms along the hallways as big as an arm's width, and large bedrooms packed with bunk beds. Ours had six, so it slept 12 people total. We each get settled into our new beds, change clothes, meet up with Shannon, who is at the same hostel, and head out together into Amsterdam. Our first stop was, you guessed it, a smoke shop. We found a great one by recommendation of our hostel's receptionist. There we buy an eighth of quality weed from a menu, go downstairs to the designated smoking room basement, get into a booth and light up our bowl. And get this, the whole basement is themed underwater space. So just imagine how intense our high journey was. Literally Saturn's rings coming out from a damn coral reef with octopus tentacles squirming out of random holes in the coral. It was clearly a room made to take you somewhere else. On our way out of the smoke shop, high out of our minds, we magically stumble upon a real life Ben and Jerry's ice cream store. We each order to satisfy our munchies. Mine was a double fudge brownie sundae made with cookie dough ice cream fucked me right up and head back to our hostel. 
We run into a couple people handing out flyers for a six-stop pub crawl for 20 euro. The girl we talk to even offers us free shots at the first bar if we say her name, which was like Amanda or Sarah or something. Sounds good to us. To kill some time before the pub crawl, we pick up a bottle of vodka and a bottle of orange soda, because apparently it's freshman year of college, not my choice, and pregame back at our hostel. After building a nice tipsy level, we head over to the first bar, say our girl's name at the entrance, and make our way into the crowd to find her in the middle, pouring some type of vodka mixture right out of the bottle and into people's mouth. We lock eyes with her, she screams in excitement, and runs over to us, waving the bottle in our faces. We all hug, then she demands each of us to squat down as she funnels a shot's worth of vodka mixture into our mouth. Then another, and another. She leaves into the crowd only to come back maybe 15 minutes later for another round of three shots each. Ugh, I love Amanda or Sarah or something. The second bar I honestly don't even remember. All I have from that bar is two pictures of Elisa and I standing outside the bar, soaking wet because it ended up raining that night, and hugging this random dude with soggy ramen noodle hair like Justin Timberlake circa 1990s in sync. Fast forward to the next bar, however, and shit gets real. So at the beginning of the night, all three of the girls made a running bet that I would be the first to find a guy and go home with him. This was alluding to me just generally being a slut, which whatever, I'm not denying it. And for almost the whole night, Elisa had her eye on some Irishman she noticed in the crowd. Irishmen are her favorite type, and she somehow always manages to find them. So at this third bar, they actually start talking over drinks with me awkwardly standing next to them, acting like I'm even a little relevant to their conversation. At this point, I'm in the drunken, all I want to do is dance mood. And I remember seeing Olivia and Shannon with us as we entered the bar, but now notice that they're gone, so I excuse myself from Elisa and Irishman's very important conversation that I am clearly involved in and go looking for them. My trajectory through the club, including thought process, is as follows. I walk straight back through a deep red-hued dance floor, passing between sweaty bodies, make it to the back wall of the bar, see Olivia backing her ass up onto a big burly man, see Shannon next to her making out with some dude. I walk in front of both of them, make a U-turn, go straight back through the dance floor to Elisa, still deep in conversation with cute Irish boy, realize that, shit, Michael, everyone has a man except you get kind of sad about it because I actually did want to go home with someone that night, laugh because their theory about me being the first slut is the exact opposite of what's happening, and ghost out of the bar alone on a mission to find a gayer club to fulfill my slutty needs. I start drunkenly walking around Amsterdam in the pouring rain, no idea where I was going or where I even ended up. At one point, I make a series of deeply depressing Snapchats detailing the events of the night, which I end up watching the next morning and frantically deleting them. I think I also actually made it to a gay bar because I remember paying $7 to get into something. But eventually I just head back to the hostel. I do make one quick last attempt to end the night on a good note and stop by the Apple store at around 3am to access their Wi-Fi and download Grindr, a gay dating app. Also, quick travel tip, if you need Wi-Fi in a pinch late at night or just generally anytime, Find the nearest Apple store or even Starbucks and just stand outside. The signal is still strong even when the store is closed. So, in an attempt to salvage whatever sad, lonely night this became, I start messaging random guys on Grindr in order to desperately find a hookup. I land a cute guy named Daniel. Sexy chiseled face, short blonde hair, slim body, stylishly hipster, wayfarer glasses, two-toned. 
He'll do for the night. I get an Uber to his place, which is in eastern Amsterdam, an unknown territory to me. I pull up in an Uber to a townhouse with large floor-to-ceiling windows and a simple green metal door. I hop out, hoping that this is even the right place. I walk up to the green metal door and see a hand pull back a bit of sheer curtain, exposing half a face peering through the window to check who it is. Fucking creepy. He casually opens the door, we exchange hellos with a stiff, awkward hug, and I walk inside his ground-level studio apartment. Do you want some coke? He says, pointing to the coffee table, which has two white powdery lines on a magazine. No, but maybe some wine, I reply, pointing to the bottle next to the coke. Yeah, sure. He pours me a sizable glass of white wine, Chardonnay, I think. We sit on his cold tan leather couch and he does a line of cocaine. We talk about each other's day for a couple minutes and then I lean in to kiss his lips while he's in mid-sentence. We make out, slowly stand up and stumble over to his bed. We have sex. He bottoms, in case you're wanting a little more juicy detail. And if you don't know what bottoming means in the gay world, then look it up because we're not going that far into this episode. The next morning, we wake up around 11 a.m. and cuddle for a bit. We have sex again, different positions this time. As we're cleaning up, I ask him a few questions about himself. Oh, I work on the Eastern Docks in the city, he tells me. I look at him wide-eyed. So you're like a fisherman? I ask, secretly hoping that I can now check fisherman off of my hookup list. No, no, I work in a chicken shack. I stare at him blankly, clearly confused. He continues. I'm the manager of a chicken shack, like it's a restaurant on the docks and we sell whole chickens and stuff. Oh, okay, that's cool. I say, trying to act like I've ever heard of a chicken shack being on any sort of dock or even existing. So the bathroom is here. I say, pointing to another door in the room, trying to get away from this conversation. He nods. I take a shower as he asks me more about my Europe trip, both of us shouting a little over the sound of the running water. I get out, dry off, and go back into the large room naked as he passes by me to take a shower himself. I put my clothes on and start quietly walking around his studio observing to gain more information on him besides chicken shack manager. I notice the birchwood Ikea bed we fucked on, a lot of records on the wall, a large bookcase with a very nice speaker system on one of the shelves next to his bed. I move past the bathroom door and into the living room area. TV to my left on an entertainment table and the coffee table in front of the leather couch to my right. I notice the other line of coke still on the magazine next to my half-full glass of maybe Chardonnay, now room temperature. Picking it up to take a sip, I notice something black wedged in between the corner sofa cushions of the couch. I bend down to pull it out. It's a gun. A very heavy, very black, very pistol-like gun. I stare at it for a minute, deciding on if I should be terrified, confused, or unfazed. I wedge it back in between the sofa cushions. Attempting to forget what I saw, I calmly turn around and come face to face with a large machete just chilling below his 46-inch TV. Okay. Hey, Daniel, I think I should go. I politely shout to him. I pull out my phone to start looking for an Uber and it's a fucking 2.3 times surcharge and it's literally 1 p.m. Shit. Oh, are you leaving? He asks as I hear him get out of the shower and grab a towel. 
I frantically refreshed my Uber page, trying to get the surcharge lower because apparently I'm a cheap fuck who can't spend whatever amount of money it takes to possibly save his own life. Daniel opens the door. Well, text me what's going on later. I'd like to see you again, he says with a sly, cheeky grin. I act casual. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I say. Okay, well, my Uber is here, so I have to go by. It's not, but I give him a quick side hug and dip out of there and hide around the corner of his building to keep using his Wi-Fi. I end up accepting the damn surcharged Uber, and a couple minutes later, a jet black 2016 Jaguar convertible rolls up in front of me and stops. The driver rolls down the passenger window and says, Uber for Michael? Uh, sure, I say in a shoddy confidence. I get in the Jaguar and we speed off. The driver rolls down the windows and I lean my head over into the incoming wind as I watch the canal houses pass by and take in the life I make worth living. All right, next up we have Mike Haverty, or as we like to call him, the Big Cheese. We met Mike a while back when we were doing a bunch of solo performance shows with him, and he's really just the number one sweetie pie guy we know. Yeah, he's just the loveliest, loveliest human. So we're really excited to bring you his piece, Physical Copy. I have at least 40 VHS tapes in my closet. Of those, I have digitized 20 of them. Of these, I've shown under 10 of them to other people. Here are some excuses. 1. For the past three years, my editing machine's relationship with the wireless internet has been temperamental at best, so uploading a video onto the internet would be too much of a hassle. 2. When I considered showing a tape that I thought was funny, I also considered that I might be wrong. 3. When I like something in my life, I'm embarrassed about it. Like, joy embarrasses me. Excitement embarrasses me. I'm embarrassed by my interests and unfortunately I am not interested in feeling embarrassed, which is a shame. So, quietly, a collection of at least 90 VHS tapes from thrift stores have emerged. I like the journey of a thrift store. A thrift store book of poems is bound by the random circumstances that this book of poems has found its way into your hands indirectly by someone else's hands. Skim, read a couplet without context, scan for doodles. You can read the notes that another reader has written down, following them while sifting through the pages of indifferent ideas, skimming to discover one sentence beaming in highlighter, where the rest of the book had only small notes. It's an epiphany, shining neon yellow, 
collected in a thrift store's bookcase, which is collected by a book section, which is collected within the media section, which lies adjacent to the furniture section and the even larger clothing sections, which make up the entirety of the complex's experience. Naturally, I bought that book. It's a copy of Adrian Rich's A Dream of a Common Language. And the fact that I can't find it right now is mildly irksome. I have been going to thrift stores for most of my life. I started with Pasadon Thrift Store in Crestwood, Illinois at the age of 11. I'd walk there with the neighborhood friends for movies and music. Then in high school, it was the search for ironic t-shirts and blazers. When I wanted to find a time alone, it was my library. Thrift stores clothed me through college. When I needed a side job, thrift stores were the ore mine of flipping items on eBay and Craigslist. It's where my urge to therapy shop has a healthier outlet. It's where I've bought an overhead projector that I want to use and I will find a use for, I swear. Now, and on and off over the last six years, I've combed through thrift store VHS collections for curios. I love finding and watching movies I've never heard of. The weirder, the better. Airbud, but with a Sasquatch. Escalator safety guides, featuring original rap songs. Alarmingly racist kids movies. The movie Witchcraft 5, Dance with the Devil. Robot in the Family. Kid Pilot, and the unfortunately named Catholic sermon, Jesus Wants Your Body. But what if I found a tape that no one else has found? You know? Or at least found something that I love that no one else has given love to. Wouldn't I want to share that love? In the winter of 2014, I spent 10 hours re-editing footage from a found VHS cassette called Joy Trek, a kid-focused sci-fi production by a Catholic company hosted by a singular mid-30s white man with brown hair in a silver spacesuit, along with his robot companion JT, traveling through the stars on the Joy Ship Energize. It's the sci-fi blues clues Jesus would want. Spaceman talks directly to the camera and says things like, Are you ready to participate in the vigorous Earth activity of exercise? The actor is stilted in the first episode, but he hits his stride in episode 5 and the episode 6 finale, where Spaceman and Robot affirm that everything will be okay, even if we make the journey and find heaven's reward. The message is told with small interruptions, like music videos of jumpsuited kids confused in choreographed song and dance. In re-editing it, I originally wanted to create something fun. Then I found myself alone on a project with too much time, and my mind becomes awash in the panic to make important work. 
Important work in my lexicon is a small idea that grows rapidly, then quickly overcomes me in a panic of potential failure. I am a sucker for important work. Important work is the one thing I want to make, and here I am, lolling about, frustrated about not making important work. It's this mental state where one small project isn't enough. Hypomatic me develops a dynamite pitch for important work, and I won't shut down unless A, the impossible has been accomplished, or B, I am heavily sedated. While I feel like now, I must say that I'm better medicated, back then was a different story, and after three nights, I abandoned the project and got very drunk. In one file on my desktop, our narrator, our spaceman, is stopped in time, looking like he's about to speak. A story is an inevitability, I tell myself. A story will be told. And my story will naturally be one of them. Scattered throughout journals and projects, a sequence of fragments arranged by narration more controlled than my own. A story isn't what I tell, but it's the choices in telling it. In my own choices, I must ask, in telling the story, do I have my shit together? In my editing of raw materials, do I have the patience to tell a story? A patience within myself. Can I broker a truce with my inner critic of form, wherein we together outline the confines of this experience, locked in debate over high standards and whether I can allow myself the freedom from a, having a grounded scene where a story can be shown instead of just told. I wanted to tell a story of faith. My own doubts with faith after Catholicism was imposed on me without a proper understanding of faith. In this story, I was grazed Catholic. My dad was the youngest of seven in a first-generation Irish immigrant family on the south side of Chicago. He grew up across the street from his church and Catholic school. He was compassionate. He was a man of faith. He made us go to Mass every Sunday. And in our life together, I wish we talked about belief more. And I wish I was able to tell this story. I find myself rearranging the fragments to create the narrative, and it's not working. A thrift store puzzle is always a gamble. Usually I'm an optimist about thrift stores. You know, I consider a pile of crutches for sale inspiring, but puzzles I have trouble finding faith in. I don't care if they taped the box close and swear all the pieces are there, I assume a 60% chance that even just a handful of pieces are missing. But that's probably about the journey of doing the puzzle, no matter what. This journey is embarrassing. This journey is joyful. All right, next up, 
I have my wonderful, beautiful, talented co-host and best friend, Anna Rose Wolf. Um, I'm sure you're thrilled. <laughs> I am. I know I am. <laughs> get ready to get medieval with her in her piece, My Saba. fascinated with living history groups. Groups of people that feel so passionate and connected to a time in history that they actually venture to recreate it. Civil War reenactors and their attention to detail and authenticity. Jane Austen fans who pay thousands of dollars to live for a week or two in a secluded area of England with no connection to the outside world. There's something romantic about getting away and experiencing a time so different from your 21st century life. Getting lost in another world, another time is something very appealing to me. And I'd argue that most people who join living history groups would agree. If he was alive today, my Saba would agree. Saba means grandpa in Hebrew. My Saba was a big man with a round belly, white hair, and a medium length white beard. He looked strikingly similar to Santa Claus, which probably would have given me a lot of excitement as a child if it wasn't for the fact that my family is Jewish. My Saba was a man of strong passion. He loved to cook and eat, which was apparent in his size. He loved Israel and was a dedicated Zionist. He loved storytelling and had a knack for telling tall tales about his life with so much chutzpah that you almost believed they were true. My Saba, in addition to his many passions, loved medieval times. Not the dinner theater experience medieval times, but the actual history of 17th century Europe. My Saba was an active member of the Society for Creative Anachronisms, which is an international organization dedicated to the researching and recreating of arts and skills of pre-17th century Europe. Members dress in clothing of the Middle Ages and Renaissance, attend events which feature tournaments, royal courts, feasts, dancing, various classes, and workshops. The society was established in the late 60s by Diana L. Paxson, who was a UC Berkeley Medieval Studies graduate. Paxson, as her graduation party, invited her fellow Medieval Studies classmates to a tournament in her backyard. Partygoers wore helmets, fencing masks, and some semblance of medieval costumes. The night ended with a march down the main streets of Berkeley's campus as Paxson and friends sang green sleeves. The graduation party must have been a success because Paxson and crew came together to celebrate the anniversary of that first party the next year. And soon after, they decided to hold more than just an annual gathering. They started holding meetings and monthly events such as tournaments, feasts, and medieval dances. The Society for Creative Anachronisms measures their dates within the society starting from the date of that initial party, referring to it as Anno Societatis Roman numeral 1, Latin for 1 in the year of the society. Now, a few decades after 1 in the year of the society, the SCA has 20 kingdoms and over 30,000 members residing in countries all around the world. Saba was a member of the Kingdom of North Shield, which is comprised of participants from Minnesota, Wisconsin, and both the Dakotas. Having heard so much about my Saba's days at war, I asked my mother to let me accompany him to an upcoming event being held in a local high school gymnasium. She begrudgingly agreed. I met him at his home where he lived with his much younger wife, Priscilla, who he called Pete. Pete, my mother often reminded me, was very much not my grandma. She opened a wooden chest on the floor of their bedroom. Inside the chest were dozens of medieval dresses for me to pick from. I went with a light pink number with a matching circle headband adorned in fake flowers and silky ribbons that flowed down my back. 
We arrived at the gymnasium early to set up my grandpa's booth. Two plastic folding tables covered in off-white muslin fabric to give it a more medieval look. My Saba sat behind his tables in a camouflage outdoor camp chair. Pete and I placed the items for sale out in a row. Animals and scenes from nature carved out of wood, metal tools, books on medieval life, and plastic figures of samurais holding small animals. Pete, who is very much not my grandma, offered to take me around while my Saba ran the booth. Together in our medieval dresses, we curtsied to people who passed us. An older man who wore a dark red shirt made out of Halloween store quality velour took my hand and kissed it. I wiped the kiss off on the back of my costume. We went into another room, the cafeteria, where a tournament was underway. Men in fencing masks and costumes fought with dulled broadswords, and one of the men held a metal cookie sheet in lieu of a real shield. Later in the day, it was time for the feast. My Saba joined us in the cafeteria, which had now been switched from the battlefield to a banquet hall. Members sat together eating food they had brought from home, and it was odd to me, even as an 11-year-old, how many families had brought KFC buckets for the grand feast. My Saba told me stories over dinner. We laughed, eating corn on the cob and mashed potatoes. The feast ended, Pete packed up the booth, and my Saba and I sat on camouflage camp chairs. I held one of the plastic figures of a samurai from his booth. As my Saba laughed and told me stories, I turned the samurai in my hand. Keep it, he said, and I placed it in my backpack. And soon after, we loaded up his Dodge Caravan and left, and I changed out of my costume, hugged my grandpa, and went home with my mom. I never went back to the Society for Creative Anachronisms. I never worked my Saba's booth again. He passed away when I was in high school. And I always remember how happy we were on that day, that day we went to war. And I romanticize like my Saba did, the idea of losing yourself in a different world or a simpler time. But for me, the simpler time I'd like to return to isn't a grand feast or a medieval-style tournament. It's the time we spent in a gymnasium, selling medieval-style trinkets and sitting on camouflage outdoor camp chairs. Well, folks, we've made it to the end of our issue. Amazing. If you enjoyed this issue, make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also check out the online issue at scoutandbirdie.com where you can see Here We Have No Bodies. Um, you can also see past issues, subscribe for updates, and you can even submit to be in one of our upcoming issues. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Anna Rose Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we'll see you next time for our July issue fireworks. Yay! So now we're going to play you out with a bonus song from the super talented Matt McNish. So enjoy Waves. Why am I thinking now? Why am I thinking now of this? Which open window led this in?
Like waves, you seem to show up in. 